It's March 2nd, 1969, and we're in Toulouse. It's a moment the French and British teams have been dreaming about for years. Concorde is about to fly for the first time. After six years of designing and building delays and progress, the dream was a reality. Concorde nose slowly out towards the starting point of her flying career. The all-important final pre-flight check carried out by chief pilot Andre Toka and his crew went without a hitch. This was it. The French Concorde prototype races down the runway. It slowly begins to lift its nose. Within seconds, the plane is at the steep angle it needs for takeoff. Then, the back tires lift off the ground. Two plumes of black smoke pour out of its engines as Concorde takes to the air. Despite being millions of pounds over the estimated cost, with some serious question marks hanging over the project, Concorde flies. After completing the successful maiden flight, the world's press asked pilot Andre Tukar for his thoughts. The big bird flies, he said. It's the beginning of the big work. That is an understatement. It's already been a hell of a lot of work getting the prototype into the air. But now, the work begins on testing it and introducing it in person to the world. An introduction that's supposed to guarantee Concorde's future success. But, as we'll hear in this episode, things don't go to plan. The 70s will be a tumultuous decade for Concorde. It will come up against the oil crisis and environmentalism. It will be accused of aviation colonialism and elitism. And countries around the world will simply say no to Concorde, putting its future in doubt. You're listening to Making an Impossible Airplane, the untold story of Concorde. I'm Nastran Tavakodifar, and this is Team Mystery, an original podcast from Atlassian, makers of collaborative software, including Jira, Trello, and Confluence. One month after the French prototype's successful maiden voyage, it was the turn of the Brits to test fly their own prototype. Nigel Ferris, a clerk at the Brabazon hangars where it was being built, was there on the 9th of April, 1969. So he took us to the actual runway in Filton where it all happened. So on that day, just about every single employee at BAC here at Filton came down to the side of the runway here to watch it happen. We were all stood very close. And the colleague I was with suggested to me that we better move back because when she started up and moved, it was obviously parallel to the runway, but then as she turned out, it would the exhaust would be facing towards us. And he said, we better move back because we're going to get blown over. And I said, no, I'm going to stay here because I want to smell the kerosene. I want to feel the blast of the engines, and if I get blown over, it'll be something to talk about at dinner parties and things for the rest of my life. The eyes of the world were on Concorde 002 as she taxied towards the runway at Filton. It was Chief Test Pilot Brian Trubshaw's decision whether she flew or not. It could be another high-speed taxi test, but the great bird looked ready to fly, and fly she did. Did you get blown over? No. Oh, I didn't. 
But for British Concorde 002's first flight, there was still one major concern, getting back down to Earth. Aviation historian Jonathan Glancy picks up the story. When he came into land, his two radio altimeters indicating his height on approach failed. Both of them, it's very rare. And so Brian's left with this brand new aircraft the first time he's taken it on the public test. Everyone's watching, the camera's out there, BBC, the whole lot. And uh, he has to, as pilots call it, eyeball the landing. When you fly an aircraft in towards an airport, of course, you reduce the power and come in gently. But Concorde wouldn't do that. Remember, it's relying on these huge vortexes of air, which are keeping it up because of the brilliant wing design. But it still has to fly fast to achieve that. And so it came in fast. And having been in the cockpit of Concorde, it's very interesting because it sits so high up, the ground's a long way down. So what that means is that it's quite very hard to judge by eye that those last few feet. And you think, well, so what, a few feet? Yeah, but a few feet in a big machine like that as a hell of a bang if you hit the ground and the that's what would happen is you know, the undercarriage could collapse, the thing could scrape along the ground, you might set off fire in a fuel tank and so on. So you know, it, that was a nail-biting moment for Trubshaw, but of course he did it with a plum. Trubshaw later said about the rather hard landing, we arrived about half a second early. Now, after hearing the story about Concorde's cockpit, or flight deck, as it's also known, I wanted to see one for myself. So thanks to the lovely people at Aerospace Bristol Museum and Nigel Ferris, I got the chance of a lifetime, and so did my producer Pedro, who was honestly absolutely giddy. Are the keys in the ignition? So we're just walking in. Um, the, the ceiling's quite low, I am thankfully short. So we're going into the cockpit. It's very, uh, there's all sorts of dials and uh, switches. So I'm just seeing lighting, cockpit door, throttle master. Yeah, just lots of stuff. It's, re it's just really cool physically seeing it, especially, I guess, because we're in a very digital age. So just seeing all these kind of analog dials and switches and levers and stuff. It's incredibly tight. Like it's, yeah. It's almost claustrophobic. Yeah. yeah. The, the thing is, um, they were only, the flight crew were only here for three and a half hours or so. So it's not like a normal transatlantic flight. They, it was quite livable with, if I can say that. Um, three crew, a flight engineer here, captain on the left-hand side, first officer, co-pilot on the right-hand side. So the flight engineer would sit here. I'd say the panel is about a metre and a half by yeah, a metre and a half or something like that. Just loads and loads of dials and stuff. Yeah. So, yeah, we have fuel management, temperature control, cabin pressure control. Mm. The flight engineer had to monitor every single system. So this one in the centre is basically the fuel control panel. You had to transfer fuel front to back and so on across the aircraft during the flight. I'm going to stop Nigel here for a second because this is something super, super important about Concorde that I want you to understand. So I'm sitting there in the flight engineer's chair and in front of me is a panel of controls for 13 fuel tanks. Those tanks are distributed all over the bottom of the plane, a couple near the front, a bunch in the wings and one at the very back. But you heard Nigel say something about transferring fuel. 
right? Okay, so listen to this. It's just bonkers. But it's a brilliant solution the engineers came up with to overcome a major problem. You see, when an aircraft flies at supersonic speeds, the center of pressure, so where the body of the plane actually feels the aerodynamic pressure of the air, that moves further back, causing the plane to dip forward. So, to balance it out, the flight engineer would actually pump fuel from the front of the plane to the back of the plane while in flight. Then, when they came out of supersonic speeds, they'd move the fuel back to the front, what was left of it anyway. It's out-of-the-box thinking by engineers, quite literally. Okay, back to the flight deck and my attempt to get into the captain's chair. For you. Cool, awesome. Um, so it's so tight in here. I mean, yeah. I'm five foot two and I'm kind of like stooped yeah. over and stuff. It, it feels like being inside a fighter plane or something. Yeah. I don't know, it's like yeah. really tiny. Yeah, well, I'm five foot 12 and it's difficult for yeah. me. Yeah, <laughs> you're, you're sitting on the floor yeah. literally. Yeah, now on takeoff, it's very quickly. You've got the four thrust levers in the center here. Can I push you can this? Have, please. I want to push this lever. Push the throttles, yeah. yeah. Can you? Three, two, one, now. <laughs> That's it. You rev the engines up and you're yeah. starting your takeoff. That feels great. <laughs> so, I mean, it's interesting just how mechanical everything is. I mean, yeah. it's just very physical. You can just kind of get a sense of how they could really feel and control. Oh, gosh, they love flying it. Can I take one or two quick photos? Oh, gosh. Yeah, 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 yeah. Here, also, me can I have a photo of me sitting in that chair? Yeah, come on. Let's do it. Let's do yeah, it. Nobody... Go on. Why don't both of you get in and I'll take a picture for you? Okay, um, love it. Let me just turn this off. You can hear me actually falling in love with Concord, can't you? And you can see those photos and many more in our show notes. Now, so far on this series, we've looked at the almost impossible challenges the engineers and designers faced when building Concord. But at this point, we're going to start looking at the bigger picture and the massive external challenges the plane faced as it tried to move from prototypes to passenger service. And the first challenge is what happens when a supersonic jet initially goes past the speed of sound, the sonic boom. I think everybody is shocked when they first hear a supersonic boom because, boy, it'll make you jump out of your skin. It's really, really loud. This is going to get a little bit technical, but stick with me. In simple terms, here's how to understand sonic booms. When an object moves through the air, it pushes molecules out of the way in waves. As the object moves faster and faster, these waves get compressed. Now, if the object is going fast enough, specifically the speed of sound, the waves can't get out of the way in time and are crushed into one large shockwave. A supersonic jet creates two of these, one at the front of the plane, where these waves are being compressed, and one at the back, when the waves quickly snap back to normal. Have okay. you heard a sonic boom? Of course, of course. Uh, not the Concorde one, but you know, I live near an um, Air Force base, and uh, during the trainings, we had always sonic booms. How was right. it? Very good, I liked it, I loved it. Yes, boom, 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 yes, boom. That's Yves Gurinard. He's an aviation professor at the University of Toulouse and worked at Airbus during the last decade of Concorde's run. 
he was also witness to France's iconic fighter, the Mirage. And you know, with a Mirage aircraft, the two booms were very, very good. Ba-bam, ba-bam, ba-bam. Yes. Could you, could you feel it in your body? Yes, but we survived. <laughs> <laughs> so Eve might enjoy the noise of a sonic boom, but back in the 60s, when the phenomenon was relatively new, governments wanted to find out just how bothersome they were. To pave the way for their own supersonic jet program, the US government planned in 1964 to submit the city of Oklahoma to sonic booms. They chose Oklahoma because so many of the city's residents were employed in the aviation industry. The thinking was they'd be more amenable to sonic booms. But it wasn't just a few booms. It was six months of daily sonic booms, eight times a day, starting at 7 a.m. The results were not what you'd expect, actually. The vast majority of citizens said they could learn to live with the noise. Only 3% lodged formal complaints, but that was still 15,000 angry people. Many of those people filed claims for damages. Some were for cracked walls and broken glass, while others claimed that entire flocks of chickens produced fewer eggs. The U.S. Federal Aviation Administration dismissed almost all of these claims as lacking evidence or credibility, even the ones that were credible and had evidence. In fact, the bad blood created by the political fallout of the tests eventually led to supersonic flights being banned over the U.S., France and Britain also conducted sonic boom tests in the 60s, but not to the extent of Oklahoma. Even so, there were complaints, tons of them, which eventually led to a supersonic flight ban over Europe. Concord magazine editor Katie John. There were complaints when the prototypes were first flown supersonically over land, which was why they realised they couldn't do that because, you know, people's windows were shattering and greenhouses and tomatoes were being stabbed with flying glass and things. But even so, that could be overstated. The fear of the sonic boom was huge in the 60s, but not always based on evidence, as Oklahoma proved. Here's what Concord chief design engineer Ted Talbot wrote in his memoir about the effect on local buildings in Britain. Take the stained glass window of a church near the test base, for instance. The vicar and church wardens expressed worries which were deflected when it was demonstrated that the windows stood to have more damage inflicted by the bottom notes of the church organ. Eve has a story as well about fear driving people to hear something that simply wasn't there. When they made the test about the boom in the south of France and they published in the newspapers the time where the aircraft would pass in order that the people could give their impression Unfortunately, there was a technical problem this morning. The aircraft could not take off. But they received letters saying that some people heard, yes, yes, the flight did not occur. But the idea that sonic booms were harmful, or dangerous even, had spread around the world. And it was into this world that the prototypes embarked. They were shown off on international tours to drum up sales and to shore up airline orders that had been placed in the 60s. There was a series of sales flights by Britain and France. And I think it was a success in that people got to see Concorde for themselves for the first time. 
One Australian man said he'd actually gone to Sydney to protest about Concord arriving. And he said this, he thought it was a dreadful, noisy, smoky monster and he was going to stand there and shout at it when it came. And he said he saw this shape coming and he just fell in love with it. And his opinions just turned 180 degrees. Sadly, for Concord sales teams, there were many people who didn't have that Australian's reaction. In Japan, there was a lot of concern because they were flying, the sales trip was made by the prototype Concorde, which had very, very noisy, smoky engines. And that problem was subsequently solved to a great extent. But yeah, seeing 002 sitting on the runway belching out smoke worried the Japanese. But people weren't just worried about the sonic boom or the clouds of black smoke which gave the Concorde prototypes the nickname Smokey Joe. It was even the sound of Concorde taking off and landing. The problem is this, noise. This is a 707. This is a 727. This is the Concorde noise. Loud, low frequency, a noise you can actually feel like a loud stereo set. The idea of Concorde flying to the US was already in doubt in the early 70s. We have to live here, you know, not the people that are building the jet, not the people that are pushing the jet to be a success. They don't have to live here, we do. We got enough noise here. One by one, countries around the world started to voice serious concerns about this loud, smoky airplane, mostly focused on the sonic boom. Katie John, when they were doing test flights down the seaboard of India, for example, and the sonic booms were landing and the Indian government protested. And one of the things that they said to the British government was, you know, why are you doing this to Indians when you won't do it to British people? Are we, like, less important than British people? In 1975, the former British colony of Kenya was suggested as a testing ground for Concorde. This is Dr. Perez Olindo, then Kenya's director of national parks, being interviewed for British TV. There are a lot of reasons why any right-thinking person should condemn the Concord in the present world. It's quite a compliment for Kenya to have been selected as the, as the area for these tests, showing that Kenya has reached a, a considerable degree of, uh, of technical sophistication. Wouldn't you agree with those people? If I was going to be hanged and someone complimented me for being chosen, I would not agree with him. As Katie John points out, Concord was seen by some as a form of aviation colonialism. That Concord was not a dream of a wonderful new future, but a symbol of an elitist past. I don't know if you remember when the moon landings happened and Gil Scott Heron did that song, Whitey's on the Moon. You know, people are starving all around the world, but Whitey's on the moon. Well, there's, this must have seemed like an aviation version of that to some people. We asked the Concorde engineers and designers we spoke with whether or not this political and financial turmoil worried their teams. John Britton. We worried about them because obviously after Boeing stopped their SST, that the movement in the States got quite strong against Concorde ever flying into the States. Because, I mean, this site here at Fulton, at one point, was 100% Concorde. So everybody working on the site, whether it was in manufacturing, design or whatever, we were all working on Concorde. So if Concorde had been cancelled, you would have had hundreds of thousands of people here at Fulton potentially being made redundant. 
And those thousands of people had reason to worry. As the 70s dawned, countries around the world banned supersonic flight over land, crippling Concorde's potential flight paths. Trips across Europe or the US were out of the question. And Concorde couldn't hold enough fuel to cross the Pacific. That only left transatlantic flights. Would that generate enough income to support an entire fleet of planes? Meanwhile, the teams of engineers back in Britain and France were hard at work perfecting the prototypes and preparing to build a fleet for commercial operation. As we explained in past episodes, the rear fuselage was the responsibility of the British. Yet the French were looking after the aerodynamics of the entire plane. And after some testing, Dudley Collard realized they could reduce air resistance by extending the tail well past the fin. But the Brits, who were already building the rear of future Concorde aircraft, didn't like that idea. So Dudley headed to the UK, to the Weybridge site, to plead his case. They had rear fuselages coming along on the production line. And here comes this muggins saying, we can get a huge improvement if we lengthen it. I had to go up and defend it and tell them what I was going on. They wanted to do differently, and I said, no. And I said, no, because this is the one we've designed, we've done the testing and so on, yours is slightly different. Oh, yes, but yours will weigh a bit heavier. I said, and yours will have higher, probably higher drag. And the, you think that on the Concorde, if your drag went up 1%, you lose, well, about the equivalent of about five or six passengers. In other words, if they overcame this wind resistance, they'd be able to accommodate more paying customers on the plane. It was a case of aerodynamics versus production, with economics caught in the middle. The Brits had already started preparing pieces for future Concorde aircraft and didn't want to scrap all that work. But the French knew this would improve the plane. After Dudley made his case in person, the Brits gave in. As often happened during the production of Concorde, the right idea won. This was an example of each side being willing to admit when they were wrong, or if the other side had simply come up with a better plan. John Britton is clear that, on their own, each side could not have accomplished what they did together. I mean, it took us 10 years to get from prototype to production. We couldn't have done it in the timescale. And the facilities that were available... You know, we had several factories working on it. You know, Filton, Weybridge, Rolls-Royce, Snecma, Aerospatial, Dassault, Hispano Sousa, Messier, landing gear. You know, you drew in the expertise from the different companies. But this collaboration wasn't just about combining the best of these different groups. It also allowed for any deficiencies on one team to be compensated by the other. And while it's a great example of teamwork, sometimes there are challenges even great teamwork can't overcome. Katie John explains. The oil crisis jacked up the price of oil fourfold. And then suddenly the economics of operating something as thirsty as Concorde looked a lot more shaky. And a lot of the airlines who'd put down options on Concorde backed out. They thought, we can't afford this because running any airliner was going to be massively more expensive. And Concorde, it was an unknown quantity. They didn't know what they were letting themselves in for. And then 
at the same time, the Boeing 747 had come into service and it was a mass transport and people, you know, doing their sums in the airlines suddenly realised we can make money on this where we probably may not be able to with supersonic aircraft. In June of 1972, Air Canada was the first airline to cancel their options on Concorde. The hammer blow came early the following year when Pan Am, United and TWA cancelled their options in quick succession. Pan Am felt Concorde just didn't measure up to jumbo jets when it came to carrying loads of people for not much money. In fact, they correctly foresaw that operating Concorde would require much higher fares than originally assumed. Plus, they saw the future of air travel not as a race for speed, but a race to the bottom price-wise. By the end of 1973, almost all other airlines had pulled out. Despite that huge setback, in 1974, the governments of France and Britain approved the building of 16 Concorde aircraft. They'd already spent so much time and money, they might as well go for broke. Plus, who knows, maybe those airlines would change their minds. And so, back at the Brabazon hangars and in Toulouse, most of the Concorde aircraft being assembled were whitetails. John explains. The first thing you do when you're building an aircraft is you paint the tail with the colour of the customer so that anybody walking through the production line can see, oh, you know, that's a, a British Airways or that's a Lufthansa aircraft or that's an Emirates aircraft. And they can see whether they're, whether they're working on the right aircraft or not. And if you don't have a customer for a particular aircraft, they're called whitetails. So the aircraft can be fully finished and rolled out off the production line. And if it's a whitetail, everybody knows that it's not sold. What, what does <clears throat> that do for the morale of a team? Well, people are not happy about it, obviously. But um, I think probably the people that were most upset about it was the taxpayers, because <laughs> the British and the French taxpayer were, were financing all this. Let's call that a bit of dark humour. It's how us Brits deal with difficult issues, you know, to have a bit of a laugh. But politicians and executives at British Aircraft Corporation and Sud Aviation, now known as Aerospecial, weren't laughing. The world had changed, as Katie John tells us, and it didn't bode well for Concorde. I think the dreams of the 1950s and the 1970s were very different because they were very different worlds. In the 1950s, Western Europe and North America had just come out of the Second World War. And to kind of boost everybody up as much as anything else, they were looking to the future, looking to these fantastic new technical projects in aviation, industry, energy supply, all sorts of things. Everything was going to be bigger, better, faster. And by the 1970s, things had changed so much. There'd been the Vietnam War, which was a difficult, unpleasant, traumatic war for everybody. And thousands of young men and billions of dollars were being lost. And people were also becoming more aware of the environmental costs of all our modern conveniences, not just aviation. By the mid-70s, calls were growing from politicians, environmental groups and others to cancel the Concorde project. But with so much time and money having been invested, abandoning it now seemed impossible. Back at the Concorde production sites in Britain and France, of the airplanes being constructed, about half were not whitetails, 
The only airlines that kept their orders were Air France, who purchased four, and British Airways, who purchased five. And they only agreed to take on the planes because of political pressure. As nationalized businesses, they had to help the government save face. But it was kind of a shell game, like the government buying planes from themselves. For now, in 1976, just as all the political and economic pressure was building, and after nearly a decade and a half of development, British Airways and Air France were preparing to finally launch supersonic flights with paying passengers. It's the morning of 21st January, 1976. Concorde aircraft are lined up for takeoff at Heathrow Airport in London and Orly Airport outside of Paris. The plan is for them to depart at the exact same time, a tribute to the cooperation and collaboration that has led to this moment. Thousands of people are gathered at the airports to witness this historic event, while on TV, an estimated 250 million people watch from around the world. At precisely the same moment, 12.40 local time in Paris, both supersonic jets begin to roll down the runway. Both planes lift off in unison. The London flight headed to Bahrain in the Persian Gulf and the Paris flight to Rio de Janeiro with a stopover in Senegal. Despite the turmoil over Concorde's future, the flights capture the world's imagination. Jonathan Glancy and Katie John. I think what, what was exciting was the idea, apart from the sheer beauty of these aircraft, it was the fact that so much had been loaded against them, you know, that Concorde wasn't going to be able to do this. And you're willing it on, willing it on, and then, yeah, does it. And that's, I think that was that excitement. It was such an achievement. Even the Americans said that it paralleled their achievement in sending men to the moon. It was our moonshot in a way. And it was also the ultimate advertisement for British and French technical excellence. And it amazed everybody that people just wearing their ordinary clothes, shirts, sleeves, business suits, dresses could get on an aircraft that was traveling faster than a rifle bullet and travel in complete safety and have a nice meal and look out the window and see the curvature of the earth and all these things. Remember in episode one, when we contrasted the futuristic dream of Concorde with the almost 19th century reality of life in Europe? Well, in the late 70s, once again, Concorde seemed out of step, and not just economically and environmentally. While these folks were flying on Concorde in tailored suits and fine dresses, the Sex Pistols were playing their first shows in London. As 1976 continued, both the Air France and British Airways Concorde aircraft were far from full. Both airlines realized there was a key destination they needed in order to survive, New York City. The problem is, New York didn't want them. There was a big movement in New York trying to say Concorde can't go there because she's going to make too much noise. The takeoff noise was very, very loud indeed. There's no point pretending otherwise. This is Ricky Baston. He started working on Concorde in 1974, and we'll hear a lot more from him in the rest of the series. It all hinged on New York, because unless the airplane could get to New York, she was always going to lose money. 
Despite completing an FAA audit that had cleared the way for Concorde to land in the United States, New York City protested. In March of 1976, just a few months after Concorde began commercial service, the Port Authority of New York banned Concorde because of noise concerns. Concorde's only chance of survival was hanging in the balance. In fact, the battle for Concorde's future would go all the way to the US Supreme Court. Next time on Making an Impossible Airplane, the untold story of Concorde, the program faces a whole new raft of problems. One of the things on this aircraft in particular that began to be a problem were the fact of her age. It was a headache. It, it, there's no point pretending otherwise, but you had to just, just roll your sleeves up, scratch your head and find out what's wrong and go on to it. But Concorde also becomes the sexiest airliner in the world. Saw Michael Jackson quite a few times coming on and off. I flew back with Diana Ross. My first ever transatlantic was with David Bowie, one of my heroes. There were ordinary people who'd saved up for years to get a flight on Concorde. One person even sold his house so that he could get a trip on Concorde. That's next time on Tea Mystery, an original podcast from Atlassian.